Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their efforts to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, uh, our focus today is going to be a bit different, uh, a bit freeform, uh, although I suspect we're going to be covering some very, very important topics in healthcare delivery today. We have the great pleasure of having Scott Becker in dialogue with us today. Scott is the founder and publisher of the Becker's Healthcare and Becker's Hospital Review. He's an attorney, a partner at McGuire Woods, and a former board member of McGuire Woods. Mr. Becker also served as chair of the National Healthcare Practice at McGuire Woods for over a dozen years. He is a graduate of the Harvard Law School and is also a CPA. Now, on a more personal note, uh, I was introduced to Mr. Becker through a mutual acquaintance, Rich Hill. Rich is, has actually been my professional executive coach for the past couple of years, and I just have to express my gratitude uh, to Rich for introducing uh, me to Scott. Also, just have to say that Rich is a phenomenal executive and organizational coach. And in preparing for the interview, once uh, Scott and I got introduced and uh, were corresponding with one another, I did actually give Rich a call. And I said, Rich, listen, I really value your perspective on people and your take on people. And just give me a heads up. What is uh, Scott Becker like? And without any hesitation whatsoever, Rich said over the phone, he said, he is incredibly generous. It is so obvious that Scott gets a genuine pleasure out of connecting people with one another and making things happen for people. And I have to tell you, uh, coming from Rich Hill, that's pretty significant feedback. So, um, and I have to say, just given the interactions I've had with Scott uh, over the past uh, two, three weeks in preparing for this interview, um, I would say that I've experienced the same thing. So, uh, Scott, I hope I haven't embarrassed you too much by that introduction, but how are you doing this morning? No, thank you so much, Zev. And it is a, it's a privilege to be here. I've noticed the growth of your podcast series over the last couple of years and been tremendously impressed, as you know, because I think the other way that we got to know each other is I responded to one of your, one of your emails on the podcast. And I've just been really impressed with what you've done. So I've enjoyed getting to know more about you and what you're doing. So thank you so much for uh, having me today. I greatly appreciate it. Well, Scott, thank you for the kind words, and uh, and again, thank you for joining us today. Before we jump in, uh, and I've got so many questions to ask you, um, for the folks who aren't as familiar with what you've been doing, and quite honestly, um, I, I can't imagine that many people in healthcare are not aware of the Becker Report, but for those of us that aren't, could you give a very brief high-level sketch of both the Becker Reports as well as the conferences? Sure. No, thank you so much. So Becker's Healthcare is an organization I founded and then has really been driven over the last decade or so by our CEO, a woman named Jessica Cole, by our editor-in-chief, or editors-in-chief, Molly Gamble and Laura Derdra. And, and we've really got two primary goals. We, we try and have great conferences in healthcare, and we have a tagline or concept that they have to teach and entertain. And and, and the reason for that is they're, they, we're really a, around the business of healthcare more than clinical, but clinical has become a big part of it too. And so in our events, it's constantly trying to make sure lots of interesting sessions, but then also we'll add in, we've got this meeting coming up next week, President Bush speaking, President Clinton speaking, Sarah Cliff from Vox speaking. We're trying to hit this right mix as well as the CEO of Kaiser, Bernard Tyson. We've got Gene Woods, the CEO of Carolinas, now Atrius speaking later in the year. We try to get this right mix of, of teach and entertain. And, and our second great goal, aside from having really terrific events uh, where people can interact and visit and learn, is to have winning digital presence. And so we've, we've built, through our editorial team, our business team, a, a terrific website um, that really tries to cover you know, – we're in four or five different healthcare niches today – but the core site is Becker's Hospital Review and tries to be short, concise, sort of really someplace that people can go to, whether our electronic weeklies or our 
website where people could really get their hands around what's going on in healthcare in, in, a, uh, in a quick sense. Um, so that's really what we are today. And, and we've, it's, it's grown a lot over the last 25 years. And we've had great, you know, it's, it's this constant effort to be relevant to hospital executives, relevant to healthcare leaders, and, and relevant to companies that work in the healthcare space. So you need to really be worthwhile to both. Um, and, and, and we build our meetings around great speakers, meaning health executives like yourself, together with some of the bigger celebrity keynotes too. Um, and, and people like you will start to cross that line between being a healthcare executive and a celebrity too. So we've, we've just had great, great fun with it and built a, a great team that really drives a lot of that. Scott, I really love what you said. In fact, I wrote it down, educate and entertain. Um, and that is exactly the experience uh, I have when I read the Becker Report. Um, now, I have to tell you this. The, the only complaint uh, that I hear from people, and, and if you can call it a complaint, is that the Becker Reports daily are so engaging and they're so appealing that people literally just can't help but uh, return to it. And in fact, I have to tell you, I, I, I must click on it three, four, five times a day, uh, reading through articles. And uh, then, of course, the articles take you elsewhere. And I, I use that information. I share it with colleagues. Um, I, I have to tell you, you, you guys do a phenomenal job, and I've heard that from other colleagues as well. Uh, I, I use a lot of the information, in fact, in the presentations I give around the country. Now, Scott, I just began really noticing the Becker Report in the last couple of years. But uh, how how long have you and your colleagues been at it? Right. So this is one of these kind of things, and, and it's it's bifurcated because we were solely – if you go back 25 years ago, we were solely in the surgery center arena. And it was about 12 years ago that we ended up adding two more niches, which is the hospitals and health systems and spine and orthopedics. And what really happened was is you sort of follow your audience, and the hospital and health system area now is – 80% of the media company or more in our two biggest meetings that, you know, that, that draw several thousand people each and that we can invest in and have the right types of caliber speakers at to, to make them a draw. You know, the, the April meeting is 4,000 plus people at it. That's where we'll have President Bush, President Clinton. We've got our CEO meeting, which is a big meeting we hold every fall in the hospital sector too. That's in its now you know, the annual meetings in its ninth or tenth year, the CEO meetings in its seventh year or so, and that's where we'll have this mix. We always try and we're having political speakers always to have balance. So we have Hillary Clinton speaking. We also have Tom Coburn speaking, a Republican senator. And then to, you know, in the concept of constantly teach and entertain, we'll also have Theo Epstein, the president of baseball operations for the Chicago Cubs, who brought the Cubs Red Sox to World Series. And then we have great, great keynote speakers. So Gene Woods. Is speaking at our November meeting, but yeah, so the, the hospital side of it's in its about eleventh or twelfth year, but it's the predominant part of the company today. The second largest part of the company today is the health IT area. So if if you look at four verticals we're in within healthcare, it's hospitals and health systems, health IT, and then surgery centers still after twenty five years, and spine as well. Wow. Tremendous staying power, tremendous growth, tremendous appeal. Scott, do you have uh, – well, how many people receive your daily reports and, and, and how many people click on them daily? Sure. So in total, we have a number of different daily reports. If you look at the hospital side, you've got a, our core, core publication, which is the Becker's Hospital Review daily report. And that goes to about 400,000 people a day. Then we've got a CFO one and a CIO HIT one a quality one, and these are on the hospital side, and a CEO one, and those go to respectively smaller numbers. And separately, there's similar types of things in spine and surgery centers with, with comparably smaller numbers. So the, the website visits daily, anywhere from sixty to 90,000 people visit the website each day. Uh, last month, a couple million visitors. So if, so if you look at a comparison, compared to other healthcare publications, we're very, very well-read um, compared to like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, we're just an infinitesimal small percentage of what they get read each day to give you a comparison. So we, we, we viewed it as, oh, I grew up in the 
Jack Welch era, the Jim Collins era in terms of business leadership. From a Jack Welch perspective, his core theory, and I still believe in this very much today, and why I'm so interested in the growth of your podcast, which is magnificent, is in any business you're in, and same with health systems, same with most businesses, you have to be the one of the top couple leaders in your business. And and that's important from an offensive and good times perspective and a defensive perspective in bad times. In the media business particularly, in good times, everybody makes money. It's it's much like when healthcare reimbursement is going great, everybody makes money. In bad times, all the spend, all the money to be able to survive goes to the, you know, to the, to the, to the couple that are still the strongest brands, the most important brands. It, it's where, when I see your podcast numbers growing, like they're growing, you know, and, and there's a lot of different podcasters and there's only a few that are growing critical mass, but that critical mass position is so important in any business. And so when we got into the hospital business, we just had tremendous opportunity in it. We found it tremendously interesting, just fascinating. And, and, and we had dealt throughout my entire legal career with hospital executives, physician executives, really both sets. And so for me, I had a content understanding, obviously not the depth of content understanding that our speakers and writers and authors have today, but had a content understanding. And then we, we found ourselves in the media business at a fascinating time where digital was really just growing. And the event business, you know, today the event business is crazy. The whole world's in the event business. But at the time, there were, there were a handful of players, and we just wanted to be equivalent to them to be one of the top players. Well, Scott, you clearly are a top player, and uh, and I really appreciate what you just shared with us about um, maintaining a lead position. Uh, coming from you and and your success, uh, I think there that's a, a a really important lesson for all of us. So let me dive into this a bit more and 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 ask you about the kind of core brand and the core value proposition. So so you the the Becker Report, the Becker Conferences, you're, you're you're clearly serving a purpose for hundreds of thousands of customers that you have. And, you know, Clayton Christensen, uh, the professor from the Harvard Business School, talks about this. And he says that the brands that are successful and have sustained success are actually solving a problem for their customers. In, in his words, he calls it the job to be done. And so my question for you, what problem are you solving for your customers each and every day? What gap are you filling for us? And, and what is the job to be done that you're completing for all of us? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great, great question. So we've had sort of constant evolution over the years because you're constantly trying to figure that out and get better and better at it. But then we've stuck to some core strategies, and it's taken us a long time over the years to get our, our editorial team all on the same page. But what people are – and, you know, so I am – you mentioned it before, and I'll say this not to, to give context. So I started off as a Harvard lawyer. So I used to think what people wanted to read was the longest, most intelligently done, most interesting thing done, and I would pride myself on writing long analytical articles. And what I found over the last two decades was that – well, two people might want to read my articles, what people are really turning to today, and it's almost when you're in a magazine, you get the same experience. When people are looking today, is they are looking for, they're in a busy world, they're looking for quick information to give them a sense of what's going on. You know, where do they fit compared to others? What should they be doing? What should they be thinking about? And, and, and what really that's driven us to is, I used to think I was so brilliant in writing long, interesting articles, and my writers, who are very, very smart, are much better at writing short pieces, three to five, seven key points that give the writer a very clear sense of what is what they need to know, what's out there, what's going on. Is their competitor laying people off? Is their competitor growing? Is their competitor growing these service lines? Are their competitors investing? Are they not investing? You know, sort of what's going on in the field and what's happening. And for me, it was an evolution that we and what we've done, and I've got a unbelievably talented editor-in-chief who's been able to really build a great team. And we work with really smart writers. We've got 20, 25 full-time writers, journalists. And, you know, to have them have the discipline to generally write in a certain way that readers want to hear while maintaining a high degree of intelligence with it. And, and it was sort of getting them to the mindset of, 
I could work at least partially, 50% of my time in a formula of writing, but it, it, it doesn't denigrate me as a writer. In fact, it strengthens me because I'm able to clarify my thoughts on what readers want to read. And so we have the brightest people, really bright people, writing in a short form that gives people what they want to hear. It, it's the same thing. We have a very similar formula for our meetings. And I, I used to say this jokingly. Every speaker, at least in the old days, would say, I really need 60 minutes or 90 minutes for my message. And I used to joke with that speaker, as much as you want 60 to 90 minutes, I can assure you that your audience wants 30 minutes or less. You follow me? And it was, and it's just the reality of people's attention spans today. People want to be polite if they're bored in a presentation. They don't want to leave before the presentation's over, but they, but they, but they don't want to sit through a, you know, very often do they want to sit through a presentation more than 30, 40 minutes. And so we, we were, all of our sessions are 30 to 40 minutes. A couple keynotes might be longer, but, but it's really intended to the same thing. It gives people a quick sense of what's going on. We're not going to be the best clinical journal. We, we a long time ago decided we can't compete with the GMOs of the world, the peer reviewed journals. That's not our business. What we can't be great at is being the Wall Street Journal of our businesses and help people get a quick sense of what's going on. What do they have to know? And it, it's a fascinating thing editorially, and it's the same concept that we use to teach and entertain. Our subject line will have three to four items in it, and it, it can't be the most boring esoteric items that hit the specialty most closely. It's got to be this mix, and it can't be crazy. It can't be sort of scandalous. We don't go scandals. We don't do investigative journalism. We're just not interested in that. We're just not interested in harming people. We understand we're in the business publication world, so we're, we're not really in the investigative journalism world, but we are in the world of it, it's got to be interesting. And, and the biggest crime as a journalist, obviously, the biggest crime is to plagiarize, but after that is to be boring. So, so we, we try and be teach and entertain in everything we do. That's really the, the, the core concept of those things. And then it's a matter of trying to win in our areas, being in areas that are worth winning, and just, you know, I've come to the conclusion over a long career that nothing gets done without great teams. You know, the, the iconoclastic individual greatness. Most people don't have the energy, and in a complicated world, nobody can put off for very long, so nothing gets done of any significance without teams. I'm just, we're just the, the strongest believer in in anything we do, you then get going and then you have to build a team behind it. And it just, it just, it's a reality of business or life or almost anything. Scott, uh, this is great. There are so many directions we could go in. You know, one of the things that surprises me about you is I'm getting to know you in our correspondence before today and, and now listening to you speak is your profound curiosity in so many different areas. You know, you went from law, from mergers and acquisitions, and then into online publishing and into conferencing and into your uh, leadership. There's just a, a ton of different directions we could go into. And, and I just want to say I really, really appreciate the comments you're making about teamwork and the absolute necessity uh, of, of and the importance of working as teams. And of course, the way that you uh, have led and, and the way you manage your own teams. Now, now one of the things I'll say as a as a customer, one of the things that really grips me about the Becker Reports Daily is I'll click on an article and in the Becker Report, and, and I'll be honest with you, I'm just surprised uh, every time I read an article that in, you know, three, four, five, seven bullet points, I'll really get a great picture of something that's really important and in, on some levels really complex. Um, and, and if I do want to dig deeper, you've got links and connections to other sites and ar other articles. You guys do that so extremely well. Um, I, I think it actually may be one of your major competitive ad, competitive advantages. It's definitely noticeable, and, and I just wanted to give you that feedback, you know, from one customer's perspective. And, and quite honestly, I've heard the same thing from others. So it's it's definitely resonating with your customers. Let me let me pick up on another thread you talked about. It's not just the way you deliver it, which is wonderful, but it's also what you deliver. And it's it's figuring out the level of complexity, you know, being at the right level of content, not too much in the weeds, but enough in the weeds. And also 
where do you go in the vast fields of healthcare, literally and metaphorically? I mean, there's so much to choose from each and every day. So is it is it that you have research teams that are scouring the markets daily? Um, I mean, again, you're, you're putting out an amazing amount of content each and every day. It's it's almost hard to keep up with it. How, how do you and your people uh, pick what to focus on? Um, is that something you could share with us? I think it's a, it's a great question. It goes back to something you and I were talking about at the start, at the start of the, the, the discussion that we had was, I mean, they are constantly looking at, they are constantly scouring the world for what's out there. They're constantly talking to healthcare executives of every sort. Um, and, 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 and it were very analytics and numbers driven. So we're every morning there's a report on how much, which article was read, which was the most read article. And, and constantly sort of following those trends. And we, we divide our writing team into sort of there's there's writers and there's editors, and all of them have to be very smart. And as you know, smart itself, experience itself, is, is A, just part of the game. They've also got to be turned on and passionate and wanting to do great and wanting to be engaged. And I think one of the great things that you talk about some – and it's a different issue entirely is this issue of burnout, motivation, engagement, and so forth. And hopefully we'll talk about that at a different time or a different podcast. But it, it's, it's people looking constantly at numbers. There's, we have to have extremely bright managing editors, lead editors that of the hundred articles or so that get posted to the hospital site each day, they have to decide in each area whether the CFO report, we've got a CFO editor in chief, Ayla Ellison is magnificent. In the HIT area, it's Emily Reply. She's great, but they have to, their job is to really be both smart, but be common sense oriented in picking what the reader is going to want to see each day, what's going to be interesting to them. And, and what happens when people first get into this editorial job, they are intent on being so deep in the weeds of their area that sometimes they could miss having this connection with the audience. And it, and it takes our editors, our lead editors, you know, some period of time. And they're constantly seeing numbers every morning that give them a sense of are people reading or not. Just like on your podcast, you get, you know, I know this morning's had, that you issued this morning had magnificent uploads and, and you try and study. Now, why did that have magnificent uploads? Was it the speaker? Was it the subject? Is there just a lot of interest in that? Or is Zev just driving a lot of interest? But, but you try and figure those things out. And so we're constantly studying numbers. And we've got a, we've got, you know, we, we've had an editorial team that I, cannot be more thrilled with the leadership of and the whole group. So, but they spend a lot of time scouring for what's interesting. And then the discipline of them is, you know, many of them grew up in journalism school wanting to write long form, you know, 40 paragraph articles. And the discipline is to realize just nobody reads that anymore. I mean, a few people do, but not many. Yeah, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, man, I'd love to intern at your place uh, to learn how to do that short form, you know, because like everyone else, uh, I, I'm challenged with it. It's, it's a discipline, it's an art, and not many people do it well like you guys do. So, Scott, let me, let me ask you a question, just stepping back for a second. I think you're, I, I would say you're in a, in a niche in, a niche in healthcare. You're in the, information business, um, and, and feel free to, to disagree with that if, if, if I'm not uh, getting it right. But, you know, a, a clearly what you're selling, the, the information, the types of information, there's increasing demand for it uh, at all levels and all sectors of healthcare, whether it be on the provider side or the payer side or the employer side or the government or policy or just plain consumers, uh, leaders, et cetera. People want this information. They want this knowledge. I guess maybe it's uh, the power from having that information and knowledge. What are your thoughts about that? Sure. No, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, we have, we have, um, goodness, we have, a series is different of different thoughts on it. One thought is that we can't be all things to all people. So, so we have to decide which areas, which niches we're going to try and be great at and, and to, to win at readership in those areas. So we, we can't be in all areas. We have to be in areas that allow us that are large enough that allow us to pay our team well. So they do really well. So, you know, what you can't have in team, we want people that are thriving in our culture and that don't wake up every morning irritated about what they make. So we have to be in serious enough areas 
where, you know, it's almost the old concept of you can't have mission without margin. And so we have to do okay. So we, we, we try and keep ourselves very focused on a handful of niches. We, we try and give readers what they want. And then the, the changing aspect of the world and the media business is, is we a long time ago decided we wanted to be the most viewed websites, the most viewed digital properties. And that meant an old Google concept of the best price is free. So readers read our stuff for free. And the, the changing world is, the constantly changing world and the pivoting world is, will advertisers and sponsors and exhibitors and the people that pay for it, that make sure the bills get paid, keep, keep playing through with us? Because we want to have the most read site. And the most read site to us means no paywalls. You know, it means, it means making it easy for a reader to read us. You know, sprawling, interesting, focused sites, but not having, um, but you know, you don't have to go through a paywall. You don't have to even sign up. I mean, it's very easy to get on our sites and that's by design. So the best price is free, but then we've got to make sure in this information world that, you know, that, that we've got advertisers, exhibitors, sponsors that find value in connecting with that audience. Um, and that we'll find the value in it and will, and will help us, you know, fund it all. Scott, what do you think your listeners are are doing with the information? I mean, I, I would say it's more than just information. It's knowledge that you're generating. Um, so, so I'm wondering, what's the real concrete value proposition? I, I mean, I can give you my opinions, but I'm, I'm very curious about your perspective. My, my sense is we try and mix two things really well. And, and so one of my um, favorite writers is a CEO of Northwell Health, a, a guy named Mike Dowling. And Mike is a really bright, really good person. I, I just am a big fan of his. And I'll tell you about somebody else in a second. So we try and hit this right balance of giving people the daily news they need in the sector to understand what's going on. And again, it's got to be teaching and entertain. It's almost if it's too boring, then people won't read it. So it's got to be both. So it's constant giving people the information they need, plus giving people enough of the deeper, more interesting thoughts from leading executives in the area. And, and that's part of the, part of the information we're trying to share as well. So Mike Dowling is a, I've learned more from Mike Dowling over the last decade than from almost anybody else. He just has a perception of where things were going that was way ahead of the curve on many issues. And so he writes for us all the time, enjoys it. And just, it's, but it's very helpful to mix that, just giving people the news they want with some deeper thoughts. I mean, it's similar to our meeting coming up. Yes, we've got Bernard Tyson speaking, who's the CEO of Kaiser, and we're just thrilled to have him speak. Um, we've also got Terry Fontenot. Terry's a former chair of the AHA, and, and, and she'll do a keynote address and talk about sort of these issues today of the Me Too issues, the, the harassment issues, what's going on in the workforce. And she sort of has a unique perspective on it as a long-term CEO, as a woman CEO, but also someone who's been a chair of the AHA. So it's constantly trying to fill this vacuum. And I'm not sure I'm hitting this information right, so I have a responding question right. But, but it constantly comes back to how do we give people thought leadership and also the core news they want to see, just the, the things they want to know that's going on, you know, and, and, and what they have to be paying attention to. So the bigger picture is teach and entertain. And then within that, it's sort of this breakdown of giving people the news, you know, sort of from a business-centric perspective, although it's gotten broader than that, obviously, as we've grown, and then also some of the deeper the deeper perspectives, you know, whether it's perspective from Terry Fontenot at our annual meeting or the perspective of Mike Dowling every month, whatever, whatever it might be. So people have that right mix. Right. You know, I, I've read uh, Dowling's articles, and, and I agree, they're educational and they're actually entertaining. And you keep on using those two, and I love that formula. But, you know, I, I have to imagine some listeners are thinking entertainment. Uh, I mean, what could be entertaining about these topics? They're technical, they're complex, having to do with healthcare policy, spines, surgeries, hospitals. Now, clearly, uh, I and, and your other customers are, are, are passionate about it, super interested in it, I assume lots of others because they're clicking and reading the stuff. But but how does your team make this stuff entertaining? I mean, what's the entertainment part? Sure. So I'll give you an example. So every year at each of our meetings, we have keynote speakers that are outside of healthcare. So you and I have a mutual friend who's in healthcare, Dan Murray, who's been a keynote for us on the spine side. But then in, in a magnificent leader and person, and 
Dan's got a fascinating view of team building that I use all the time that he's talked about. And maybe when you see him later, you'll talk to him about that. But he's got a great thought on, on team building. But then entertainment would be at the same meeting. We might have Arnold Schwarzenegger speak or at this meeting coming up, Bill Clinton or George Bush are speaking. Um, and they're really intended to be entertainment versus teaching. I mean, we had last year Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jay Leno. And I'll have, you know, what, you know, in every audience, but, but then we're, we're coupling that with 200 sessions on literally the business of healthcare. So my view of the world is after 200 sessions of the business of healthcare, people need some relief. They need some balance. I really love that comment on balance. What, what, what another great pearl of wisdom. But, um, you know, I, I have a, a well, I want to get into a, a question about this whole issue of leaders and, and the mindset, mindset of leadership. And I want to get to that in a minute. But before we do that, I, I feel compelled to ask you a question uh, about these keynote speakers. And you, you have such a great lineup of world-class leaders, whether they're entertainers or sports people or politicians. Um, and so I'm just wondering, do you get a chance to talk to these folks that you have as keynote speakers? I mean, you're such a keen student of leadership and, and of course, a, a leader in your own right. Are there key lessons that you've gleaned from these folks? I mean, yes, there's no question that they bring an entertainment uh, value and a star value to your conferences, but they must also be amazing teachers. And I, I just have to think there are life lessons that you've learned from them, business lessons that you've learned from them, especially being exposed to these people year after year. So are there any stories or lessons or are there any commonalities that you've gleaned from these uh, world-class keynote speakers? Sure. I mean, the, the commonality is, one, it's fascinating to watch all of them in their own way because they all, they've all been successful in the public stage and that requires a certain amount of personal skill. And so I, I've had this fascinating thing of watching people from, I, I had a chance to interview Ariana Huffington on stage three, four years ago, and she was just magnificently a pleasure, and I didn't know what to expect, but just a total pleasure. I had George Bush the same year. I got to talk to him for an hour on stage, and just a pleasure of a person. So so my parents, who are ardent Democrats, came away thinking, wow, he's really a very likable guy, and just a total, complete pleasure. Um, other people I've had, that there's other people that have impressed me in different ways, and sometimes it be a person like Terry Bradshaw, who has struggled from manic depression and had been up and down and, and has talked about this a lot. But watching him go from being very quiet to then getting on stage and being full of life and watching sort of the transformation, just fascinating to watch people like that. There's other people that aren't thought of as household stars but have impressed the heck out of me. People like Joe Theismann. And Joe Theismann, the reason why I've been so impressed by him is and you know how this is today in today's world, he's had three different careers that he's excelled at. He was a football player, he was a broadcaster, and now he's a motivational speaker who's done a thousand plus motivation speeches. You know, and just I think that's just fascinating that he's had the energy and drive to develop three different full careers. We've had political speakers, Tucker Carlson, who now has moved to be harder right as he's got that lead spot on Fox. And our goal is always as a media company not to be Fox News, not to be MSNBC, because we don't want to, you know, the audience in healthcare is, is really split very equally between liberal and, and conservative, Democrat and Republican. We try not to be either. We tr do try and bring in both our meetings. But what's, what's, what's fascinating to me is when Dr. Carlson speaking in an audience, uh, in person, a pleasure and, and not too hard right and the left part of the audience likes him as well. But on TV, he's a different personality. He's had to move further to the right. It's almost like he becomes a character of himself. Uh, we've had a couple bad experiences with speakers, but over the years, almost universally, you know, they're they're a pleasure, and they're in the business of being public figures, and just a pleasure and interesting. So, so Scott, what personal life lessons have you learned from speaking to these folks year after year? It's it's so hard to tell when I'm when I'm. What I, what I love is there's certain people that have an energy and a zest for life. You know, I, I'm a big believer and I'm in, you know, now growing into the mid fifties in life versus a kid anymore. And I'm a big believer in this concept of never retire, that you've always got to be active and engaged and so forth. 
and 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 that doesn't mean that you have to work at the same pace you did in your at some point in life but but i think from my own perspective uh, you know i have seen plenty of people do it and 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 slow down and become less healthy and less mentally engaged and all that kind of stuff some of you believe that what what i find fascinating is watching people like bill walton He's got this crazy energy still after 30 back surgeries. I mean, just like people like that, that it impresses me, these people that have rebuilt themselves. You know, Rudy Giuliani, for as much as people like or dislike him or his different positions on things, is, you know, I mean, this person, after a political career, built, a, built 13 different other business enterprises. And, and whether you like him or not, he's done a thousand different speeches for, through Washington Speakers Bureau. I mean, it's amazing for me to see that kind of energy. Lou Holtz is the same way. 80 years old, and this guy's still doing, you know, 50, 60 to 100 speeches a year and, and loves doing it. I mean, there's Lou Holtz has got a great concept. He always speaks in his speeches about, and I was, I didn't grow up a Lou Holtz fan, but, you know, I've seen the Notre Dame faithful be crazily proud of him. But what he says is you have to have a purpose in life and you have to have a partner in life. And I think some of that resonates with me. I think you do need those things. Um, and, and, and I, I think it just is, I think it's just been fascinating watching these different people. You know, most of them, people say, well, he's so not nice on TV, this guy or that guy. They're almost all very nice in person, but they don't get to where they were without having great personal skills. I mean, John Bolton's in the news right now. We had John Bolton several years ago, and and I actually like John Bolton, but he's fascinatingly bright. We had him and Howard Dean debate each other, and they're both a pleasure as people. You know, I mean, Howard Dean, who had the famous, you know, Dean scream after the Iowa primary he won – We've had him speak five or seven times now and just a pleasure of a person to be with, you know, and, and, and a, a ardent Democrat. So my parents love him, you know, and I'm somewhere around, you know, socially liberal, politically, financially conservative. So I'm somewhere in the middle, but, you know, but they love him and he's just a pleasure of a person, though, too. I mean, but, but a lot of these people are. Wow. What great advice uh, about life, uh, having a purpose and a partner. I, I really love those two Ps. So, Scott, I, I want to switch gears uh, and, and talk about a different set of healthcare leaders. Um, you know, given what comes across in speaking with you is your keen appreciation and your curiosity regarding leaders in healthcare and the mindset of leader, leaders, what it takes to be a leader in healthcare today. So, what do you think are some of the major challenges uh, facing CEOs? You, you know, you mentioned a whole bunch of CEOs, including Michael Dowling at Nor- Northwell, and you talked about Gene Woods at Atrium Health and, and Bernard Tyson from Kaiser Permanente. So what are the major challenges, whether they be market challenges, organizational challenges, policy challenges that our leaders are really encumbered with today? What are they concerned about and, and what are they focused on? Sure. I think there's probably, you know, there's there's some core ones out there. It's the uncertainty for many of the hospital systems of the payers getting much more closely into their business, you know, payers now being providers as well. Obviously, that sort of famously happened with UPMC, Highmark, and West Penn, Allegheny in Pennsylvania. But now it's rampant throughout the country as the different payers who had made so much money in the payer business are now also in so many other businesses as they deploy their capital into being providers too. So that's sort of one trend out there. Another big trend is, of course, this great uncertainty of how Amazon, Google, and others end up in the business, uh, Facebook, Apple, you know, and what does that do to healthcare? And so as, as you're running these multi-billion dollar systems, big systems, you, 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 you try and come back to how do you keep on doing what's working and at the same time keep your eyes wide open to how you have to transform. And, you know, what's worked has been a been being a regionally strong or dominant system, you know, being the place that patients have to go to. They have to work through your system. That that's been the strategy for so many systems. And for those that have really rid that strategy well, They've done well with it. You've been the place they can't go around. You need to have our system in the, in the matrix. And the concern is that stays true is you do have people like Bernard Tyson at Kaiser who last year reported 50, 60% of their visits were through virtual care. And I think all of us understand, you know, it's almost how urgent care grew up. This, the consumers love the convenience of it, the quickness of it, the not having to schedule it. 
And the, and the same thing with virtual care. If you could do it by phone versus having to come in, you know, that's terrific. Just a terrific thing. And Kaiser, because they really are value based, they own the insurance side too, has gotten way out ahead of that because they're not so worried about getting paid for every virtual visit. They, they still do, but they're not as worried about it as you would be if you're a system that doesn't own the insurance side. So I think, I think trying to block and tackle, strengthen your team, strengthen your core areas in a changing world is, a, is a, you know, you have to look at it and say, Zev, that job of a CEO of a major system today, not an easy job. I mean, you better figure out how to transform while you're still winning. And that means continuing to block and tackle on what you're winning on, but making these transformative steps at the same time. And so, you know, you look at some of these CEOs, and I see some CEOs that guide their systems to merging out of existence because I think they don't want to, they don't want to, they don't want that challenge over the next 10 years. That's just a hard challenge. I get other CEOs that have truly just embraced it. And how do they sort of hit it straight on? continue to make money in the core business while they adopt and grow into some other businesses. And, and all in this, the context of, you know, the changing face, payers before were so careful in not competing with their health systems, and now they're not. Um, and similarly, this, this changing context of the Googles, Amazons, Apples, et cetera, getting into healthcare. And if you're, you're a CEO at some point, I mean, it takes a very strong constitution today to be a health system CEO. I think it's sometimes you look at all these changes and all these things that can scare you and you just want to go home. You just want to go to the golf course. You just want to go on corporate boards and, and, and say, and I've seen health system CEOs do this, that essentially rather than figuring out the next strategy of their system, decided, oh, good a time as any to merge. I can still go out with a good reputation. I'll be done. And I, and I could, you know, I can, I can move forward onto the rest of my life and call it a success. And then you have other CEOs that say, no, 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 I'm going to stick in this. We're going to keep building our team, keep building our strengths. What can we win at uh, and, and try and transform some of how we deliver care in this period of time? And I think it's a fascinating juxtaposition that, you know, it's it's the oldest thing in the book. It's not just the organization. It's having great people in the organization, but it's also the leader and the leader's personal biases that can drive good or bad decisions, too. Scott, that's that's a really insightful articulation and expose of the kind of mindset and resilience and perseverance and, and courage that's required of leadership today in healthcare. And, and and I think you're painting a very, very accurate picture. You know, I get the sense that most people don't really understand how serious uh, the time we're in is in healthcare, how much is shifting and, and changing and, and – um, Really morphing. The industry is morphing. Um, it, it's, it's, I think it's a great time to be in healthcare if you're really interested in uh, transformational change. You know, you know, people talk about the fact that, um, that value is going to be liberated even more and more in healthcare. And, you know, and it might be that these competitors and these new entrants, um, may actually be forcing or catalyzing that liberation of value. And, and, you know, as you also said, um, it, it does seem to me it requires uh, almost kind of like a, a, a one-two punch kind of strategy. There's no question that we have to continue the kind of operational, the daily blocking and tackling we're doing for sure. And at the same time, it, it, it seems to me, um, as you were suggesting, we need to have a, a, a second strategy, a parallel strategy that is very focused on the future and, and in, in a very, very different way than we had to think um, two years ago or, or three years ago or and for sure five or ten years ago. So am, am I understanding the picture you're painting or am I overextending it? No, I think, I think that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm always amazed at the work that places like, um, and there's a, there's a parallel here in a couple of different tracks, but the, the Mayo's, the Cleveland Clinic, the New York presses of the world who have tried to be so great and so elite that the view is, and, and, and I don't mean elite in a bad way. I mean, they've, they've stacked up on talent and leadership and research and care delivery in a whole variety of ways. And they also have great health systems with them, not just great research institutions, where they've tried to maintain greatness that they hope the country will continue to pay for, you know, for another 50 or 100 years or whatever it might be. And, and they continue to be with, with Harvard and, and Mass General 
and, and, and several other institutions constantly rate in the top five, ten systems in the country. And, and I, that's sort of one strategic view of it. I view Kaiser in a different path where they, you know, different cost structure and transition things in a different way. And, and hopefully in our country, there, there's room for both. I mean, there's room for both. There's room for like, for great, the greatest level care at the highest level research and that, that are being provided by some of these institutions. You know, I saw Stanford invest in building a $5 billion facility on the West Coast. And they've got two hospitals in their system, I think, right now. But they want to be sort of the Mayo of the West Coast. I would, I would, I would I look at that or, or the Cleveland Clinic or whatever you want to call it or Mass General. And, and hopefully there's room and the country will still pay for that. But at the same time, you know, there, we've got to also be able to, as a country, deliver care at a less expensive level. And so what Bernard Tyson's doing is also amazing. I mean, the other CEOs that I, you know, there, there's a guy, Jay Shannon, who runs Cook County Hospital in Chicago. And I constantly, we constantly rate Jay as one of the 100 great hospitals in the country, Cook County Hospital. And people might look at that and say, how could you rate Cook County as a great hospital? And, and Cook County, I view as a great hospital. And I, and I give credit to Jay and his team for this because they've tried to transition something and, and, and they provide care to literally millions of people a year. They don't get paid like Mayo gets paid. They don't get paid like Stanford gets paid. They don't get paid like Kaiser gets paid. They get paid by Medicaid on a good day. And the work he's done to try and make that a place as a great safety net hospital, obviously, oh, it's not the place for a lot of people to go to for a lot of reasons. But the work that some of these people that run safety net hospitals have done to give the best care they could possibly give on the budgets they have, uh, to me, is outrageously admirable and laudatory. And he, he, and he, and to me, um, with some other leaders sort of in, in really, a, in puts that together in as good a way as you can in, in a brutal situation. There's another guy in a small hospital here in Chicago, Jose Sanchez does a similar thing with the Norwegian American hospital, total safety net hospitals and, and trying to be as great as they can in the context they have. Scott, I so appreciate you raising uh, that particular issue about safety net hospitals and, and other healthcare systems that do that work, because it, it's so critically important. If we're going to advance healthcare in our country, we, we are not going to solve the healthcare challenge in the U.S. unless we attend to the social determinants of health, you know, these core issues of poverty and the lack of education and income. I also think it's it's such a great perspective uh, that that you just shared with us that um, healthcare delivery is not going to be homogeneous. The challenge is just so immense and so diverse. Um, there's just got to be different types of offerings out there in the market. And you know, I think it's such a very helpful, uh, encouraging, encouraging message that you just delivered. And uh, Scott, I, I, I know you've got an appointment and uh, that you got to get on to, and I, I just want to respect your time. Um, so I'm going to make the request that uh, we do this again sometime very soon, because um, quite honestly, I haven't covered so much of what I really want to talk with you about in terms of the, the market and the market forces. Uh, but, but before we close, uh, I do have a question which I ask every guest on this show, which is, what was the best piece of advice you were ever given? Sure. There were really two pieces of advice I got. It's so funny because I, I wrote an article about this a couple of years ago. Oh, when I was a young lawyer, I came out of a law firm where the, and this was 30 years ago, where people still yelled and screamed at people to get stuff done. And one of the young associates that I worked with, and I was probably a young partner at the time or a senior associate, I had, you know, I had <laughs> learned that yelling was a way to get things done. And, and he uh, pulled me aside after yelling at somebody else. And he, his name is Marcelo Corpus, is the guy who, who gave me the advice. He pulled me aside, and he was junior to me in the hierarchy of big law firms. It said to me, look, when you yell at him, you may be completely right that he screwed something up, didn't do something right for the client, whatever it might be. But, but the reality is what you're doing is you're screwing up the environment for everybody. And so it was, it was, it was, a, it was a monumental piece of advice for me. And I was, not that I was a screamer all the time or anything of that sort – but it sort of was a, it was, it, it changed my behavior on a moment's notice that I, I really, I could count the times on my hand, you know, on one hand and probably less than a, less than five digits that I've yelled since then at a colleague for anything. It was just the best piece of advice I ever got and sort of like 
team environment, team atmosphere. The second piece of advice I got was from a, um, a, a partner at Latham & Watkins, another large firm who had built a great healthcare practice. And this was, again, 25 years ago or so. And his name's Jerry Peters. And, and, and Jerry said to me, look, you're building a great practice. You can't do anything without building a serious team. You know, nothing gets done without serious teams. And I think that piece of advice was, uh, was completely right on. So those two pieces of advice. And then the, the other thing that I, that I just love, the two other pieces of advice that are really right on board with that. Jim Collins book, Good to Great, the concept of it really is the same thing that you can have the best strategy in the world, but if you don't have great team, great people, strategy is relevant. It's just, it's just meaningless without great people. Um, and then the Jack Welchian concept and this old concept was this concept of, um, you know, of, of constantly, um, you have to be one of the leaders in your market you're in to survive in good or bad times. I mean, the, the last person who just has been, uh, hit this right mix for me and, and I talk to regularly is a CEO of, uh, the Carillion system, Nancy Agee, who just got the perfect mix of sort of drive and temperament with people. And sort of watching this constant curiosity, this constant drive and drive to build a great organization while having great temperament with people, I think it's just um, an amazing balance that I've studied from and watched her over the last couple decades and just love watching how she deals with people and grows a great system. So, but but those were sort of, I, I, I of course, <laughs> I can't help myself, I overhit it and gave you five different pieces of advice, but the, but the Jim Collins, one of the Jerry Peter ones, Completely overlap and the, um, the, uh, the temperament issue in a workforce and culture issue and how eye opening it was for me, what this young lawyer told me and had the wherewithal to correct me in, in our hierarchical organization was just, it was life changing for me. So, but, uh, thank you for the, 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 just a pleasure talking to you, Zev. So thank you. Well, wow, Scott, thank you so much for all that, sharing all that uh, advice that you received. You know, I just have to say, in, in listening to you today, um, in my opinion, I mean, I think you should write a book on leadership. I mean, you've just gleaned so many wonderful lessons and you put them into practice and you've been so successful. I, I just see a book. Well, well thank you so much. I, I'm like, uh... I, I've grown out of the long form journalism and writing concept. So I would, I would do what you said, but in a 10 point article. But thank you. So Scott, again, I, I want to thank, uh, I want to thank you, uh, Scott Becker of the Becker Report for being a part of today's creating a new healthcare and bringing us really unique perspectives, especially in this area of, uh, healthcare, online communication and journalism. Um, re really just a very, very special opportunity for myself and the listeners today. And as always, I want to thank our listeners out there, uh, especially the ones who are taking care of patients each and every day, or those of you who are supporting our, our providers of uh, care. Uh, the work is is so hard and and so critically important. And again, I just I I feel compelled to acknowledge you and recognize you and and express this this true appreciation and gratitude for what you do. So I hope this episode has been as enlightening for you as it has for me. Until next time, this is Zeb Newworth. You've been listening to Creating a New Healthcare. Be well.